0: It's lovely to see such a good crowd on this lovely day. I'm Lizzie Barker, the Stanford Calderwood director of the Boston Athenaeum, and it's my great pleasure to introduce two Athenaeum members who will be speaking to us this afternoon, Karen Corsano and Daniel Williman, who will be discussing their new book, John Singer Sargent and His Muse, Painting Love and Loss. This sensitive biography sheds light on Sargent's art through an intimate history of his family, with particular attention to his niece and muse, Rosemarie Ormond. Karen and Daniel came to this project by an interesting route, one that I dare say is characteristic of many of our experiences here at the Boston Athenaeum. She served as senior programmer of the Nurses' Health Study at Boston's Channing Laboratory, among other projects, and he was professor of Latin and history at New York State's Binghamton University. Their previous collaborations beginning in 1991 addressed medieval Latin archives and libraries. But by the time they married in 2003, their interests had moved forward in history and they were collecting material for their present book, which draws on a rich trove of primary source documents including many research materials encountered here at the Athenaeum. As many of you may know, our institution served as the incubator for the John Singer Sargent Catalogue Raisonné Project, which was led by a former curator here, David McKibben, who began work on it as early as the 1960s. After the lecture, I would encourage you to take advantage of the very easy opportunity to study some real Sargent's. There's a rather good portrait here, and there's an exceptionally fine portrait there. Climb up to the gallery level, it's worth a look. Now, however, please join me in welcoming our speakers to the podium.
1: we would like to thank the Athenaeum for the opportunity to speak here today in this splendid room and for the perfect arrangements. It was in the research reading room upstairs that we studied the Athenaeum's unique and fascinating collections of Sargent papers. In our book and its notes, you can see how much important testimony and enlightenment we found there. We thank the Athenaeum and the special collection staff for so faithfully keeping those archives.
2: Karen and I are professional historians, so we know how to work with archives and how to write a true narrative of the past, but our special field is medieval popes, not Edwardian artists. (laughs) (laughs) Nevertheless, the story of John Singer Sargent and his muse took hold of our imaginations, and this is how it happened. My specialty is the court of the popes at Avignon in the 14th century, and so I knew and used the pioneering work of the art historian Robert André Michel, who died in battle in 1914. Robert's widow was Rosemary Ormond, a beautiful young woman. Sargent had painted her portrait. Rosemary served as a volunteer nurse in a rehabilitation hospital for blinded French soldiers until she too was killed in 1918.
1: I am a native Bostonian, and so I grew up aesthetically in the Museum of Fine Arts, the Boston Public Library, and the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum, with their many and great works by John Singer Sargent. We began to put our knowledge together when we visited Sargent's decorations in the Boston Public Library, a mural known as The Triumph of Religion. A fine art historian, Sally Promi, wrote the descriptive pamphlet that the library provided for visitors. Promie um, commented that the face of church was a portrayal of Sergeant's niece, Rosemarie Ormond. Putting together the story of Rosemary's widowhood and death and our knowledge of medieval iconography, We thought that we had the matter of a small academic article about Sargent's symbolic use of blindness. Fifteen years ago, we brashly mentioned our little idea in an email to Richard Ormond, Rosemarie's nephew. Richard is the director of the Sargent Catalogue Raisonné, and he wrote back under the letterhead of his catalogue, under the catalogue letterhead, "Yours is an interesting story." I will help you in any way I can."
2: In the Globe a week ago, you may have seen the article announcing that Richard Ormond has donated his rich family archive of Sergeant material to the Museum of Fine Arts to be the nucleus of a Sargent research center there. Well, he began helping us by inviting us to dinner at his house in Highgate, north of London. And before dinner, he laid out before us that family archive. Rosemarie suddenly came to life in dozens of letters, most importantly her letters to her brother Guillaume and Sargent's letters to her. Our story became the chronicle of three families that came together because of Rosemarie in the decades around the turn of the century. Sargent, Michel, and Ormond families that embodied the European civilization of that moment, cosmopolitan artists, connoisseurs and collectors, music lovers and scholars. And that is the book we wrote, with Rosemarie at its heart. Today at the Athenaeum, we will focus on Sargent's time in Boston and the people, the friends and colleagues who made Boston another hometown for him, his third after Paris and London. You probably know the outline of Sargent's life. He was born and brought up in Europe by his nomadic, expatriate American parents. He and his sister Emily were a year apart, best friends to each other. They learned all the major European languages, like natives, and little Johnny was especially adept at his piano lessons. Playing and listening to music was a passion all his life. Their mother, Mary Sargent, was a serious amateur artist, who led the children in an unending seasonal migration through picturesque and artistic Europe. She inspired the children to draw and paint and encouraged them to finish what they began each day. When John was 18, he walked into the atelier of Carolus Durand and quickly became the most favored, most popular, and most successful student there. Most young artists were in Paris partly to enjoy being free in Bohemia for the first time in their lives, John Sargent found his first stable home there, in that atelier at the Ecole des Beaux-Arts and in his own first studio. His parents and Emily and the much younger sister Violet, after trying for a season to stay put in Paris with him, continued their peripatetic ways. From Carolus Durand's studio, Sargent quickly ascended to the front rank of the painters of Paris and his successes in the Salon of the 1880s were well publicized in Boston. El Haleo was bought right off the wall of the Salon by the Boston Brahmin, T. Jefferson Coolidge, and Sargent painted a number of portraits of Bostonians on their European tours. Everybody knows about the Salon scandal of Madame X decadent and disdainful, with her intense makeup and her fallen diamond strap, which Sargent showed in the Salon of 1884. André Michel was a young Paris art critic, one of Sargent's supporters from the time of his very first Salon, and a professional friend. Michel's circumspect review of Madame X explained the negative public reaction to it. Michel wrote, Another foreign painter, an American, Mr. John Sargent, is showing the portrait of a woman of the world, Madame G., which has raised a small riot among the viewers of the vernissage and which we certainly must talk about. The critics of the generation to follow us will be freer to comment on this strange and troubling work. They will no doubt try to find in it a document of the high life of the year of grace, 1884, and of woman as an overheated and artificial civilization has made her, and of a certain kind of taste, less responsive to frank and healthy blooms than to the artificial plants of the boudoir, and less responsive <laughs> and less responsive to a complexion from the open fields than to one sold by the cosmeticians. To speak only of the painter, I am among those who are interested in his <clears throat> audacious work and his original talent. Would you like to see the winner of the Prix de Salon that year? Yeah. <laughs> 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 uh, it was it was Paul Leroy's portrait Portrait de, de Samaire, almost a parody of Whistler's Mother that showed in the Salon of 1871, and André Michel wrote. Now over here is a good town woman in a cotton dress, seated in profile, holding in her hand one of those fans that the novelty stores price at 10 cents. Peacefully at home, lost in a reverie of domestic arrangements. This is the grand prize portrait, and I add a portrait of grand charm on account of its clear, full, fine painting and its just, sincere, living sentiment. The Salon Jury and Parisian society did not like a foreigner showing it up as brainlessly decadent, even if a great and serious part of Parisian society thought that too. (laughs) There was such a fuss over Madame X, and the sitter and the judges were so unappreciative that Sargent moved out of his Paris studio and leased one in London, Whistler's studio in fact, in Tite Street, Chelsea. Sargent's admiring Anglo-American friend Henry James encouraged the move by introducing Sargent to the English clientele for his portraits and to Isabella Stewart Gardner. She came to Sargent's studio to see Madame X face to face. Sargent already knew enough about Mrs. Gardner to value her good opinion. Mrs. Jack was already a fan of El Haleo. Scandal amused her and an artist who caused one and who also painted like Velazquez and Goya and Hals, intrigued her. She informed Sargent that he would paint her portrait and that it would be his best picture ever.
1: (laughs) Sargent's first working visit to America in 1887 was a great piece of luck. Henry Gurdon Marcon, a trustee and later head of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, offered him a commission to paint Mrs. Marcon. A bad time, Sargent thought. Uh, He was working hard to establish his portrait practice in London, so he set a price for the portrait that was double his current fee. But then, Marcon agreed to it, and so Sargent had to come to America. Two months, he thought, but he stayed for seven, including 11 weeks in Boston. On that trip to the States, Sargent began many lifelong friendships especially with artists and musicians. He painted at least 16 commissioned portraits and about six more as gifts for his hosts and his friends. Most famously, he obeyed the summons of Isabella Stewart Gardner to repeat the sensation of Madame X in a portrait of herself. The painter, Frederick Porter Vinton, lent Sargent his studio and organized a one-man show for him at the St. Betalf Club where Sargent had a crowd of friends, supporters, and patrons. The pictures were up for two weeks, and the clubhouse was crowded with a delighted and gossipy public. The club did not produce a catalog for the show, probably because its exact makeup was unknown until the doors actually opened. Some of the canvases were scarcely dry. But with the help of the complete paintings, we found all 22 of them, and here they are. Sargent's first one-man show was a grand sensation, and some of Boston's abiding favorites were there. You probably have seen this one, tucked away in an obscure corner of the Museum of Fine Arts. (laughs) (laughs) Isabella Stewart Gardner liked El Haleo so much that she rebuilt her music room in Fenway Court as a shrine for it, and T. Jefferson Coolidge gave it to her. Mrs. Boyd, the mother of the daughters of Edward Daly Boyd. Mrs. Inches. She complained that the nose was too large, and she tried to get Sargent to fix it during his trips to Boston in the 1920s, but he never found the time. Good for him. It's an adorable <laughs> nose. Finally, Mrs. Uh, John L. Gardner. This portrait was titled for the show, Woman, an Enigma. Mr. Jack Gardner, abusing his husband's privilege, prerogative to be candid, told her, it looks like hell, but it looks just like you. (laughs) He forbade it to be shown publicly again while he lived. And although Mrs. Gardner did think it was the best thing Sargent had ever done, she was happy to let the legend percolate while the real thing remained unseen. This summer, however, when the show John Singer Sargent Portraits of Artists and Friends is at the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City, Mrs. Jack will be there as of right. She was Sargent's friend for the rest of her life. In 1899, Boston was treated to an even bigger Sargent show, 110 pieces. There was no doubt that Sargent was one of Boston's favorite artists and that he would always find a congenial home in the city with plenty of cultivated friends, artistic and musical, on every visit.
2: Before Sargent returned to England in 1888, his father had suffered a stroke and when he died the next year, John S. Sargent became the head of his little family, protector and breadwinner for his mother and his sisters. Sargent was 33 that year and ready for the role. He immediately planned another working visit to the United States, taking his young sister Violet with him. She was just 19 that year. Her family name was still Baby. But she had let the family know that she was not going to be an old maid, Sergeant May once have hoped that Violet would turn her attention to Dennis Miller Bunker, an artist cavalier of Isabella Stewart Gardner's, whom Sergeant later called the best friend he'd ever had. Bunker visited the Sergeants in England in 1888, and in a letter to Mrs. Gardner, he wrote, "'She's awfully pretty. "'What if I should fall in love with her?' "'He may have done so, "'but that summer, Sergeant did two paintings a bunker and Violet together that clearly showed Violet's mind elsewhere. (laughs) The family knew that Violet was being courted by the footloose heir of a Swiss cigar fortune, Francis Ormond, who had steadfastly refused to take part in the family business or any other gainful occupation. Francis was self-involved and irresponsible, a habitual runaway from his teen years on, and it seems that Sargent knew from male club gossip about other and worse failings because he could not tolerate Francie's in any dosage. At the midwinter exhibition of the St. Botolph Club, Sargent showed his new portrait of Sir George Henschel, who had been the first conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra. He also exhibited a morning walk. Violet was the model, 18 at the time of the painting, Sargent showed the picture again that year at the Union League Club and the Society of American Artists in New York and at the Art Institute of Chicago. It was like sending the flattering portrait of a princess to every court that might have a spare prince to marry. (laughs) During that year of 1890, Sargent was offered a commission to paint murals for one of the halls of, of the new Boston Public Library like a European opera house or town hall or cathedral, this was a major public building with a noble purpose and an American purpose, free access to all knowledge for all the people. From the start, Sargent considered this work the most important of his entire career. Well, no suitor turned up, or none who suited Violet, and when they returned to Europe and Violet turned 21, she insisted on her own choice and married Francis. That was in August of 1891. She gave him six children in rapid succession, like so many anchors that a worried skipper would pay out in line in a storm. But Francis remained a rambling boy all his life. Violet stuck to him with a devotion that passes at least our understanding, and John Sargent never gave up being paterfamilias to Violet and her children. Besides their paterfamilias in London, the children also had a doting grandmother, Marguerite Ormond, in Geneva, San Remo, and Paris. Violet's third child and first son, Jean-Louis, was born in Marguerite's winter palace at San Remo in 1894, and in the summer residence, the Chateau de Crevin, that year, we find Bonnie, one-year-old Rosemarie, sitting to the celebrated Geneva photographer, Frédéric Boissonnat for her first portrait. The wandering parents parked the children with their bon naman. and one September, when Violet wanted to take the children back to London, the grandmother declined to let go of the older two girls, Marguerite and Rosemarie, so they grew up with French as their first language, while their younger siblings were Anglophone Londoners, and the six got together only for holidays. We let them grow up a few years before they come back into the story, the architects of the Boston Public Library, McKim, Mead, and White, were taking a chance with the two young Americans, Sargent and Edwin Austin Abbey, when they commissioned them to decorate the library. Neither one was a muralist, but they dove into the project with serious enthusiasm. They rented a farm in Fairford, Gloucestershire, 90 miles west of London, built a huge studio to shelter their canvases, and worked at mastering their projects. Abbey, until then an illustrator chose to tell the story of the holy grail in the 15 panels around the book delivery room Sargent conceived of his task the triumph of religion not as a victory celebration but as a parade of allegorical images evoking the history of judeo christian religion in the european tradition that produced works like veronese's triumph of venice or Francesco Cossa's Triumph of Venus. Sargent had always painted what he saw, and now he had to make pictures beginning with cultural conceptions. He wrote in 1892, I'm working slowly. This is such a business of reflection, combination, research, up to the point that everything is properly arranged. The execution will probably go more quickly. Abbey's wife and his mother-in-law kept the painters fed at Fairford, and Sargent acquired a young Italian model, Nicola d'Inverno. He's Joshua in the Frieze of the Prophets, who then became his valet and factotum and majordomo. In 1895, Abbey put his finished cycle up in the library and Sargent installed the canvases for the north or Jewish wall. He would work on the remaining panels for the next 25 years. That first installation was a two week job and the beginning of Sargent's close collaboration with Thomas Fox, a prominent local architect and a live in member of the St. Botolph Club, who served as Sargent's architectural liaison with the library. Then and in the future, in the library and the Museum of Fine Arts, Fox supervised many structural and decorative modifications, and he took Precise measurements that the artist needed to perfect his task as he conceived it. Fox earned the confidential friendship of Sargent, and Sargent was Fox's artistic ideal, a master workman. Sargent brought his second installation into the BPL in 1903, the South or Christian Wall. During that visit, he was invited to use the Gothic room of Isabella Stewart Gardner's newly built Fenway Court as his studio. His birthday present to her that year was this portrait of a mutual friend, the composer and violinist Charles Leffler, who was composing a version of his pagan poem to uh, to premiere for that same celebration in her splendid music room. Also in 1903, Sargent made a watercolor sketch of Mrs. Gardner on the threshold of her cloister The brilliant winter sunlight streaming into the courtyard onto her veil obscures her features, but the picture is an ode to her, the enigmatic resident deity, and to her magnificent creation with its medieval pillars and its garden blooming in midwinter. At the end of that year, 1903, Sargent's old Parisian critic, André Michel, visited Boston since those days in the 80s, Henri Michel had become the foremost art historian in Europe, and he came to Boston on a lecture tour for the Alliance Francaise. In Boston, he visited the public library to view the murals of the Grand Staircase loggia by one of his personal favorites, Puvis de Chavannes. He visited Sargent's unfinished hall and found there is a lot of confusion there And if we need rather too much time to set ourselves straight in the midst of these tangled and violent forms, there is an unarguable power here that leaves us many recollections. Well, he didn't know what to make of it, did he? (laughs) Michel was brutally overbooked on his two-month lecture tour, delivering 73 lectures in cities as far south as Baltimore and as far west as Chicago, why mention André Michel just here? Well, in 1903, André Michel's son, Robert, was 19 years old, and Sergeant's niece, Rosemarie, was 10. And here is where she comes into the story.
1: In January 1906, Sergeant's mother died. He was 50 that year and going through a midlife reassessment of how he wanted to spend his time and his talented energy, and what he wanted to accomplish above all. He publicly renounced portrait painting that year. It had made him wealthy and famous, but he had found it steadily less interesting and more of an ethical strain. Painting precisely what he observed was his particular genius, but painting portraits of the great, the rich, and the titled demanded making them look good for their families and friends. He brutally called this the pimps profession. (laughs) He identified the Boston Public Library mural cycle as the peak that he wanted to achieve and the basis of his lasting reputation. He painted his own self-portrait because he had promised it to the Uffizi, and that was his farewell to portraiture as a profession. He took to spending many weeks of the late summers in the Alps, where the air was clear and the light good and the landscapes challenging and the human subjects were his friends and his family along for the holiday. And for Violet's six children, it was a huge delight to be together again in those magical surroundings. From 1906 to 1912, Rosemary Ormond was a part of that Alpine Idol, and those were exactly her teen years. Sargent was charmed by by his lovely niece and painted her again and again. Her her lively features light up in formal watercolors and sketches. You probably remember this one. It was the ad for the MFA Watercolor Show last year. And he had her model for paintings that he intended for sale. He reproduced her beautiful hands in bronze, and he finally painted her formal portrait when she was 18, glowingly confident in her mature beauty. That summer was the last the family spent all together in the Alps. Rosemarie was being courted by Robert André Michel, the only son of Sargent's old friend, André Michel. The wedding took place in August 1913. Sargent was Rosemarie's witness in the civil ceremony and thoroughly approved of the match. He wanted Rosemarie to be happy, and for exactly a year she was.
2: In 1914, Sargent chose a different venue for his late summer painting holiday in Austrian territory. John Singer Sargent was a citizen of the world in a way that became forever obsolete at the end of July 1914. Careless of politics, he had crossed from neutral Switzerland into the Austrian South Tyrol without a passport on July 27th, just in time to be trapped there when uh, when war made that document indispensable for anyone moving between belligerent and neutral territory. Sargent kept busy painting, but his movements were increasingly hampered by the police and the scarcity of transport, and he fretted incommunicado about the ones he loved. His letters were returned without explanation, and mail from his family arrived late or not at all. Robert was mobilized as a sergeant in a reserve infantry regiment, and in October 1914, he was killed on the Soissons front. Rosemarie sent letters to her uncle, but he knew nothing of her shattering loss for several days. He wrote her on 14 October, not knowing that Robert had been killed the day before. Ma chère Rosemarie. It's kind of you to have found the time to write to me among all the preoccupations of moving house and of the Red Cross. Yet I think it is much better that you should have plenty to do at a moment like this when the idea of the danger facing Robert could take you over completely. Consider instead that it's a source of pride both for him and for you that he's taking an active role in that noble resistance which the whole world knows to be just. And don't be surprised if you receive no letters Here as well, officers' wives are having to manage without news of their husbands, who are not yet over the border. And dear Rosemary, remember that I share your worries and concerns. I hope that you will soon receive good news. Could there be a more perfect demonstration of a neutral mind and heart than those words, reminding his niece, a patriotic French soldier's wife, that Austrian wives had the same hopes and anxieties? A week later, Sergeant learned of Robert's death in a telegram, and as soon as he could, he secured a passport from the American embassy in Vienna, made a visit of condolence to Rosemarie and the other Michels in Paris, and returned to his London home and his sisters. All his friends were involved in the war, the men in large numbers in the forces, the women rolling bandages and holding benefit teas and auctions. He made some little contributions, offering drawings and watercolors for charity, but he felt pretty useless. As for Rose Marie, she made it clear to her loving uncle that she was now a member of the family André Michel, a patriotic French woman, and that she would be living in Paris and serving afflicted France in Robert's name. The service that she chose was volunteer nursing for blinded French soldiers in a rehabilitation hospital in the Paris suburb of Reilly. Here she is in an etching by Polar and Warren. Early in 1916, when his latest pieces for the Boston Public Library were ready, Sargent sailed over to install them and took up his Boston life afresh. His friend Thomas Fox nominated him as a visiting member of the St. Botolph Club. He took rooms at the Vendôme and rented a studio in the Pope Building at 221 Columbus Avenue. He worried helplessly about his sisters and Violet's children in London and about Rosemary in Paris because both cities were suffering air raids. He treated his anxiety by keeping busy painting. He had to finish the latest installment of the library cycle and with the help of Thomas Fox to install those canvases. And he and Fox added a commission for murals at the Museum of Fine Arts to their collaborative adventure in public decoration. It's worth noting that Sargent made murals in greater Boston and nowhere else on earth. Boston was not a refuge from the war. In the beginning, there was a strong sympathy for German culture here, and it was widely believed that Germany had been an innocent victim of France and Britain. In December 1914, the Bostoner Deutscher Gesellschaft had organized a monster charity auction for the German war-wounded widows and orphans. Cooks and stewards of the German ocean liners that were interned in the neutral port of Boston staffed the banquet. The ship's orchestras provided the music under the baton of Karl Muck, conductor of the Boston Symphony Orchestra, and the charity auctions were run by the Women's Committee, led by Frau Muck and Mrs. Gardner. Sergeant's friend, fellow Botolfer, painter and chess player, Ignaz Gaugengiggle, known as Court Painter to the Back Bay, organized the decorations and the art sales. After the sinking of the Lusitania in May of 1915, however, the opinion of Boston's majority uh, turned warmly pro-ally. During the autumn of 1916, Sargent worked daily on the scaffolding in the library, modeling and gilding every least bit of ornament, repainting whole passages of his panels, attaching them to many yards of ribbed corduroy, so applied as to make the diffusion of light more interesting than from flat surfaces. That's the report of Thomas Fox. Only the prodding of his patrons made Sargent finally stop tinkering with the details and the installation was unveiled for the public just before Christmas of 1916. The Marian arch and the six six lunettes. Like the work that had gone before, this installment garnered Sargent almost universal praise and he himself was pleased with it. Sargent tried to carry on as usual, He took a three-month trip, August to October 1916, to Montana and into the Canadian Rockies to try to replicate his alpine summers. But it rained and snowed, and living in a tent was not the same as the tourist hotels he was used to. That was his last mountain holiday. The sinking of the Lusitania eventually affected Sargent. One of the dead in that disaster was Sir Hugh Lane, an illustrious Irish art dealer and collector, Lane had pledged to donate £10,000 to the Red Cross when Sargent painted a portrait of a personage to be named later. When the United States declared war on Germany, the trustee of the scheme, the National Gallery of Ireland, chose President Wilson to be the sitter. While Sargent waited for the call to the White House, an equal donation to the Red Cross was offered if he would paint the American industrialist and philanthropist John D. Rockefeller. So in the spring of 1917, Sargent traveled to the aged financier's home in Florida. He coupled the trip with a visit to old friends, the Deering brothers in Miami, and he went on a fishing trip on the Deering's houseboat called Nepenthe, forgetfulness. He wrote to Fox, April 18, 1917, The days and weeks fly by, it is disgraceful, and I am still down here. I think I mentioned before that I was induced to go on a fishing cruise of a week. Here we are in the Gulf of Mexico and still outward bound. Fishing is hard work, but the rest of the time it's very lazy and monotonous. The principal event is that I caught a tarpon over six feet long and weighing 140 pounds. My arms ache with pulling in various and heavy fish but only one tarpon, I lost the others. Not a periscope so far, but some risk of being sniped at by uh, by patrols on viaducts. In the fall, Sergeant finally was called to Washington to paint the president. He found that Wilson shared his interest in camouflage, and that made the sittings easier. But he felt like a shirker from the dangers of the war, and he worried about his sisters and nephews and nieces in London and Paris. That winter in Boston, the war news continued bad. The American troops were not yet actively engaged in the fighting, and the future was as uncertain as ever. The German forces began a big spring offensive on March 21st. Then on the 25th, the Boston Globe carried the headlines, Germany's big guns, stunning surprise, range 76 miles, beyond wildest expectations. That day, Carl Muck was arrested as an enemy alien. He would be interned in an army camp in Georgia for the duration of the war. On Saturday, March 30th, the Boston Globe brought the news of a Good Friday calamity in Paris, and Sergeant must have feared but did not know that it was news of Rosemarie. Shell kills 54 women at worship in Paris. The article went on. Rescue parties at work in a church which was struck yesterday by a shell from a German long-range gun, have found more bodies. The shells struck the north side of the church, bringing down part of the roof and opening a breach 12 feet high and 20 feet wide. Nearly all the debris fell inward upon the heads of the worshippers 60 feet below. The edifice is now a heartrending sight. The enormous mass of stone crumbled into all shapes and sizes, lies in the middle of the nave. Then Sergeant received a cable from André Michel, relayed by Violet from London. Rosemary killed in bombardment of Paris. Thomas Fox remembered being at the St. Potoff Club that evening when Sergeant had an invitation to dine out of town. There was a call to the telephone about 8 o'clock. I've just had bad news from Paris, said he. My niece has been killed and I think I won't go out to dinner. I'll come round to the club. This he did. There were no details, only a cable from England giving the bare fact. It was Rosemary, said he. Her husband was killed at the beginning of the war. She was very young and one of the most beautiful and attractive women I ever knew. And this meant much from him. Dinner was ordered with the hope on my part that nothing would happen to intensify the blow before the meal was ready however who should come in but the painter in question that was the Bavarian born Ignaz Skalgen Giggle uh, who the censorious Fox tells us had been and still was in the minds of many more anti-ally than even his birth would justify but Sargent's deep-rooted noblesse prevented all awkwardness as Fox remembered the painter asked have you dined? no said Sergeant. won't you dine with us? And when he had gone to the desk to order, Sergeant said, I don't think I'll tell him what has happened. Sergeant immediately booked passage to Southampton. Thomas Fox came to help him clear out his Boston studio after two full years of occupation. He remembered, As we were beginning, Sergeant said, There's one letter I must find. He went over the few which had apparently been kept more carefully than the rest and then began to search among the others. He was evidently much disturbed, but finally said, here it is, and I am much relieved it's found. The envelope had a black border and the letter was written in French. He didn't say so, but it must have been the last that came from Rosemarie. Back in London, Sargent accepted a part in the War Artists project. This gave him two advantages that he wanted badly a service to the Allied cause that he was uniquely qualified to perform, and a way to get into France in wartime. He had to get to Paris to visit Rosemarie's grave and to give his condolences to her French family, the André Michels. What he painted in France shows that her brave life and tragic death were constantly on his mind, bombed churches, Gothic vaults reduced to rubble, and finally, the Noble Blinded Soldiers of Gast, his monument to the blinded soldiers to whom Rosemarie had dedicated her widowhood. He finished that great painting in his Fulham Road studio and then had Thomas Fox send him the precise measure of the two frames in the Boston Public Library for his last works in that cycle that were installed in 1919. The allegorical paintings of synagogue and church, we think, are a cryptic memorial of Rose Marie and Good Friday 1918. That's all in our book. Sargent spent more than half of the last six years of his life in Boston, four separate trips, each one accompanied by his sister Emily, and on two occasions also by his niece Rain, and once by Violet as well. He continued working on the MFA murals and then added the war memorials in Widener Library, Harvard. He felt more at home in Boston than in London these days, and he never holidayed or traveled again in Europe, his beloved paradise of civilization that he had seen destroyed (coughs) by the war. Boston was far away and largely untouched by all that, but there was no stopping the passage of time. Mrs. Gardiner suffered a debilitating stroke in December 1919. She passed along her symphony tickets to Sargent and Emily since she no longer used them. Sargent painted his old friend once more in 1922 as knowing and enigmatic as ever, robed like a high priestess. She died in July 1923. Sargent had just sailed for London and so could not fulfill her last request to be one of her pallbearers. Sargent reveled in his work in the Museum of Fine Arts, a work of pure decoration. The Greco-Roman pantheon had been absent from his representations of paganism in the Boston Public Library, but those gods and goddesses and minor immortals totally populate the murals in the Museum of Fine Arts. For the first time in his career, he made the depiction of the nude a primary focus. He did hundreds of preparatory sketches Fox tells how Sargent on a hotel elevator noticed that the operator, a young colored man, was possessed of a physique which he conceived would be of artistic value. That young man, Thomas McKellar, became Sargent's preferred model for the MFA murals. And although it's not obvious to the casual observer, Fox tells us that McKellar was the model for most of the male figures and some of the others as well. Sargent asked that the dome and main stairway of the new museum be completely rebuilt to accommodate his paintings, and rebuilt they were with the guidance of Thomas Fox. Fox also took care of small details, dealing with studio rent and hotel bookings. He was known as a personal liaison as well. When Sargent's former valet, Nicola D'Inverno, was out of a job, he came to Fox for help. To Sergeant's correspondence in in Sergeant's correspondence with Fox, we not only get details of the work in progress, but also hear Sergeant's voice bantering with his old bachelor friend, reminding Fox not to forget his galoshes and umbrella, and in many letters that it's probably time for him to get his hair cut. In January 1921 we read, P.S., when are you going to stop calling me Mr. Sergeant? I've called you Fox for 25 years. During Sargent's last visit to Boston, October 1923 to July 1924, he completed his design notes for the MFA murals. Back in his London studio, he finished the MFA canvases, packed and consigned them for shipment to Boston, had a bon voyage dinner with his sisters and friends, and died in his sleep on April 15th 1925.
1: Thomas Fox got the news that day by cable from Emily. It was the headline in all Boston's papers. On that same day, the model Thomas McKellar came to Fox's office and offered the grieving Fox his hand. He said, I just came to pay my respects, sir, and he went quietly away. Thomas Fox, who knew Sargent's wishes for the MFA project in exact detail, supervised the final installation. Then Fox continued his service as an artistic executor in close communication with Sargent's sisters to ensure that the vast collection of Sargent's drawings and sketches was not sold off quickly, as Francis Ormond suggested. Instead, as Sargent would have wanted, The items were kept in organized series and given to institutions to be used in their art education programs. Fox devoted much of his time in the next five years in detailed correspondence with Emily Sargent and the huge task of sorting, cataloging, negotiating, framing, ensuring, and shipping the works to be distributed. He made reams of notes for articles and a book about Sargent, started a complete catalog of Sargent's works, but never finished any of these for publication. Never mind, his service to his artist friend was already complete. In the mid 20th century, David McKibben, head of the art department here at the Athenaeum, picked up the task of tracing and cataloging Sargent's immense body of work. His notes, including his interviews with members of Sargent's family, are kept here at the Athenaeum with Thomas Fox's collection. McKibben's work work led directly to the catalogue raisonne project that is now nearing completion.
2: So in Sargent's lifetime, Boston was a true hometown to him, filled with congenial friends. After his death, it was in Boston that the first steps were taken to sort out his vast body of work, and when his art had fallen out of fashion, it was Boston that gave him an admiring second look and Boston became a center for the appreciation of Sargent's work. Looking around this room, we see that it still is. Thank you for coming.